family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunthy, your host, and looking forward to two hours of some improvisational conversation and insight. A couple special guests having very much to do with some cool arts happening here in our area. One of them is a musician who'll be performing for us. Speaking of musicians, the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Jazz Impresario, Gus Mancini, will be playing music for us. We will have an existential wrap-up with our favorite street philosopher, Patrick Carlin. Joining me, illustrious co-host and on-air weekend warrior here at Radio Woodstock, Ron Van Warmer. We continue our search inside the workings of the human brain. What do a man who might have been the most brilliant expert in medical hypnosis have to do with a man studying body language, watching the presidential debate, have to do with the science and philosophy of meditation and enlightenment, have to do with the left and right hemispheres of our brain. We're going to try to connect it all today. Maybe a little chaotic, but we'll have some fun trying. Plus, we always leave room for surprises because they tend to find us. We'll also open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox to hear three iconic voices with some deep messages. So fasten your seatbelt, inject yourself with some caffeine or whatever else gets you motivated, and let's have some fun here at the Woodstock Roundtable. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Ron, good morning. Good morning, Doug. How are you this is, morning? Is Hal cooperating today? Hal is cooperating. The uh, There are other aspects that aren't, but uh, that's okay. We're going to be fine. So our spaceship will get to the edges of Jupiter. We'll get to meet up with the monolith and <laughs> have some fun in that crazy hotel room that astronaut was being transformed yeah, in. Yeah, indeed. For some reason, our Microsoft Word programs aren't responding but uh, you know what I find works? This comes from uh, years of technical study. Uh-huh. Give it a good kick with your foot. <laughs> yeah, I just I turned Sometimes to Google Docs because that worked. Uh, who knows? Whatever. Whatever. We're here in the twenty first century. It all works. And uh, oh, I know what we're going to start with. I found this cool website. Uh, I don't know how many of our listeners, what percentage, are conscious. Uh, <laughs> um, Especially this time of the morning. Yeah, uh, or how many have access to your smartphone or your computer? But if you do, um, we're gonna. I'm gonna play a video which is basically four pendulum clocks making noise. Okay, that and sounds fascinating. Now it actually is fascinating. You watched it before, and you were it freaked is. out by it a little bit, right? And it has to do with all the things we're gonna be talking about today about the human brain. It has to do with synchronicities, synchronous, you know, motion when things sort of connect in interesting ways. Uh, and this started 
in the 17th century when uh, a scientist was studying movements and clocks and he had two pendulum clocks. Uh-huh. So, you know, the pendulum ticks back, you know, goes back and forth to right. keep time and it makes a ticking noise. And he had two of them up on his wall. Uh, I don't know how they were attached, but they were attached to his wall. And he was in his bed reading and he set the two clocks at different times, you know, the pendulum's going at different times. Uh-huh. So if you can imagine you have Two pendulum clocks, and the pendulums are going at different rates. Right. Um, and they're making noise. It's going to be a little cacophonous. Uh-huh. So he's, he's, he sets them going, and then he's looking at some notes he had made in his laboratory. He's in bed. And all of a sudden, he notices something. He looks up, and the pendulums are starting to match huh. their rhythm. And instead of cacophonous noise, they're in sync. Wow. And he went, well, how could that have happened? I didn't do anything. That wouldn't be my question. Nobody came in here and manipulated them in any way. What the hell's going on? And that started the process. We now know, thanks to more contemporary physics, you know, how it works. I'm not a physicist, so we'll explain it in simplistic terms according <laughs> to this website. But uh, let's give the URL of this website because we're going to, you'll hear, you'll hear the results, which are interesting enough through the radio. But if you have a chance to go to the website while we're doing this and see it, it's, uh, the website is realclearscience.com. And the article is why pendulum clocks synchronize. Hmm. Now, before we play this short video, which is pretty darn amazing. Um, Ron, would you read a little bit? Uh, go past the Huygens part. I explained that the Dutch scientist in the 17th century who first noticed this phenomenon. <clears throat> and what does it say in the, in the next paragraph? There? It says experiments carried out nearly 350 years later showed that uh, Huygens was mostly correct in his explanation. When Georgia Tech physicists recreated his clock apparatus, they found that the pendulums exerted minuscule forces on each other through the connecting beam. Okay, minuscule forces. So obviously they can't be seen by the human eye or heard by the human ear. But with our modern laboratory equipment, they now know that these so-called purely mechanical devices, and this gets interesting since we're in the computer age, which we consider mechanical devices. Yeah. These mechanical devices were actually communicating to each other in certain ways. Now, they, they're not communicating necessarily in the same way we humans or other animals or biological animals communicate, but there were clearly, there were signals being sent out. We're not saying that they had an intention, but the result of those signals was, they call them feedback loops, they started Uh self-organizing. And that's why the pendulums, with no seemingly external force, went from being out of sync to in sync. You remember that uh, experiment that we talked about a few months ago where they had those little uh, computer robots that were all yeah. random and they were put and they just were running around. And I think the only thing that they were told was not to hit each other. Well, two things. That's an g- excellent example of, again, self-organization. Um, what they did, the experiment was they created these little robots called bots, uh-huh. little minuscule robots. And let's say there were two dozen of them, 24. And the algorithm they were given, the instructions were given two things. They were instructed, do not bump into each other, uh-huh. right? So avoid contact with other bots and avoid going off the side of the table because they were going to put them on a table. Okay. Those are the only two instructions. 
but they, they were motorized so they could move around, but they weren't instructed to move in any particular direction. They would just start moving. Right. And so here you have this group of bots, mechanical devices, that are all set in motion randomly. Yeah. And within a minute, they form this really beautiful pattern. <laughs> it's bizarre. So this is an example of that. And it has to do with how our brains work. But first, let's go with this. So if you, if you got to the website out there, you can play along with us. But if you didn't, listen. What you, uh, I'm going to describe what folks who are at the website will see. All right. A gentleman has attached four pendulum clocks to a wooden board that is resting on a table. Right? He starts the pendulum clocks going at different times. And you'll hear it because uh-huh. they make a noise as they go back and forth. And they don't synchronize. He then picks the board up on which the four pendulum clocks are attached and puts them on top of two what look like soda cans. Mm-hmm. And within seconds, the clocks synchronize. What Bizarre. happened was it turns out the metal cans are better... Um, is uh, create a medium whereby the noise, these little minuscule signals that mechanical devices send out when they're in motion, mm-hmm. was a bit. It, it was more transferable when on the metal cans than when on the wooden table. So as soon as these clocks were were attached in a way where they could hear each other's signals being sent out, uh-huh. they on their own synchronized. There's a little caveat at the end of the article that says that the uh, scientists noticed that external noises from doors closing or the sound of an elevator could easily unsettle the system. Right. So external noises could, could throw them sure, off. Sure, because that throws the... the, the we try, to be synchronous, there has to be... And this gets to why meditation works, which we're going to get ah. to. Um, in order for large numbers of things to synchronize, there has to be an elimination of a lot of chaos. Right. Okay. Ah. And the reason meditation works is because it helps tone down the chaos that, that is our normal brain state. Is that sort of the OM idea? There are hundreds of ways to meditate. Uh-huh. And we're not selling any one way. <laughs> In fact, I'm not even selling meditation because meditation is a formal, um, organized way of doing this, but People do this intuitively all the time, huh. right? If we fall in love, we're, there's this synchronicity going on. We didn't, we yeah. didn't plan it. Uh-huh. We didn't necessarily practice it. So we're going to play this video. It's short. And again, we have uh, four pendulum clocks. You'll hear them as the pendulums Actually, go back. There's, there's five of them. Five of them? Okay. Yep. They are attached to a board. They're sitting on a table. The gentleman will start them at different times, and you'll hear the cacophony. He's going to pick them up, the board up, and put it on, on two metal cans, which is a better transmitter of signals, and you'll hear what happens. All right. So they're all going now. It's on the table. It's not a bad rhythm. <laughs> it works. 
Now he's picking up the board to put them on the two metal cans. <laughs> Nobody is touching these things. They did this on their own. More and more together. And that all happened in less than a minute. Sounds like they're perfectly in sync. Yeah. So let's do this. Stop it there. And note about where it is. It's almost near the end, right? Yeah. So go back towards the beginning. Let's hear the cacophony when he starts it. And then shift and then fast forward to the end. So we'll make it like a much shorter duration. Gotcha. Here we go. Okay, go forward. That was about 40 seconds. Now go forward another 30 seconds or so. Perfectly in sync. Yeah. Okay, so if clocks can do it, why can't we? Ah. Well, we humans have some other things going on. We've got doors slamming. And <laughs> <laughs> We've got memories of bad things happening. Uh -huh. um, not only memories of our own, of bad and good things that have happened in our personal lives, mm -hmm. we have genetically implanted in our brains memories of bad things and good things that have happened to our ancestors. Yeah. So, and we are emotional beings. And I think most, most of us would say, well, we're kind of glad. We'd hate to be unemotional beings, right? Uh -huh. I don't want to be a pendulum clock. I'd rather be a human being than a clock. Unfortunately, a lot, of, a lot of emotional baggage comes with this human being thing. Yeah. Nonetheless, even we emotional homo sapiens can synchronize on occasions. Yeah. Um, and that's what we're going to get into right now because this is actually a phenomenon of nature. Now, if, if before we get to human beings... Let's talk about an example that everybody's witnessed, which is another just fantastic example of self-organization. And I understand religious people, someone who, particularly a fundamentalist, is going to say, okay, God's responsible for those clocks synchronizing. Okay, you know. Okay, but let's <laughs> right. just assume for a second there's no external God out there. There's nature. There's the universe. There are universal laws. What is it? We now know scientifically how self-organization works through positive feedback loops. And in fact, most scientists now agree that evolution itself is a self-organizing process. So an example of it in nature is a flock of birds. Right. We've all seen, could be a hundred birds, take off just like those bots, how come they don't crash into each other? Uh -huh. How come they fly in a perfect pattern? Because evolution has implanted in their, I was going to say brains, but it may be into their brain-body system, Yeah, 
the natural ability to synchronize. Even the bats who are blind right. can fly hundreds of them. Uh, Perfect formation. Exactly. Bizarre. Okay. So, and I'll tell the greatest example of this. This is, I'll never forget. There's certain images you never forget. So I have a friend. We've been playing golf together once a week, every week, virtually, (laughs) for 30 years. In the winter, not being content to just put the clubs away, Uh there's a golf course down in the Bronx, New York City, called Pelham Bay. It's in this huge park, thousands and thousands of acres in the northern part of the Bronx. It's quite beautiful. Uh There are nature preserves down there. um, And there's two 18-hole golf courses, one of which is open all year as long as there's not snow in the ground and the ground's not frozen. So we've gone down there and played when it's 37 degrees. Oh, lovely. Um, (laughs) And usually three or four times during the winter. Well, a couple years ago, we're down there in the winter, and it was a bit of a warm spell, so it might have been in the 40s. And we come to this hole through this path, and we come out to this hole. And this, remember, it's in a huge park. And along the fairway had to be well over 1,000 geese. Wow. Now, why they hadn't migrated further south, I don't know. <laughs> but we're playing the hole, and as we're walking towards the green, we're, seeing, you know, we're very aware of had to be over 1,000 geese. Wow. You know, eating grass. Uh-huh. All of a sudden, one of them, I see, takes off. And in less than a second, over a thousand geese. These are not wow. small birds. Yeah. And they're not quiet when they f- take off. All of a sudden, within a second of the first one taking off, over a thousand geese took off in perfect formation with this incredible noise. Wow. I think that's part of how they navigate is through sound, uh-huh. is my guess. It was one of the most phenomenal images I'll you know, bet. I, I've ever seen. We still talk about it. But think about the self-organizing power of, or strength of, 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 of course, millions of years of evolution, right? All right, so here we are with our human brains. And um, to sort of get at how maybe we can synchronize our individual brains and then our collaborative brains. We're going to start by talking about someone I've talked about before, one of the most amazing human beings I ever read about. His name is Dr. Milton Erickson. He was a medical doctor who practiced medical hypnosis, the most famous of all time. And he became known as somebody who could cure people no one else could cure. And the way he did it was, he basically communicated with the patient's unconscious, but didn't believe it was effective to make the unconscious conscious. In other words, he wasn't asking people to tell their story and then say, you see, this is unconsciously what's motivating you. Uh He would literally communicate directly with the patient's unconscious, usually either by telling a story or by slowing down his voice. So people without even realizing it were being put in what's called a trance, which is just a relaxed state, similar to meditation, uh-huh. where aspects of our brain that are not available to us when we're in beta rhythm, the beta uh, 
the, the beta uh, brainwave state is our normal waking state, which is rather noisy, mm-hmm. busy, lots of stuff going on. And as opposed to the alpha state where we're more in the flow and Erickson and deep meditators can get to a place between alpha and theta brainwave state, which is the dream state where not only are we more in the flow as opposed to having four voices telling us different things and what to do, but we're in a place where suddenly a lot of deep information becomes available that we never Uh experienced before. That's why people get a lot out of their dreams. So Erickson was this genius, and uh, I had the good fortune of having somebody on my show many, many, many years ago who studied with people who studied with Erickson and needed one more person in a, in a seminar he was doing because he needed to pair people up. And so he invited me to, ah. to get certified in this work over like a four-weekend thing. No charge. Nice. So of course, I did it. And it was fascinating. So I want to read a little bit of Milton Erickson. Then we're going to read about a guy, because this is the only way I'll talk politics on this show. <laughs> There's enough polit- political dialogue out there, and we don't learn, let's be honest, we don't learn a lot from politicians. No. But politics is a very complex and interesting game. So when I watch the debate, I'm not saying it's unimportant, but I'm watching it kind of as a game, how, how people compete with each other, how they, um, how, ta- how skillful are they at getting a point across, you know, uh-huh. their strategies. I find the game part interesting. Well, it turns out, and this was in, uh, at the Politico website, a guy named Joe Navarro, who's an expert in nonverbal communication, which Milton Erickson may have been the greatest at, wrote an article called, I'm a body language expert, here's what I saw during the debate. And it's really interesting. Ah. Because he's not listening to what people are saying. Right. Because he knows, and Milton Erickson knew well before him, we've proven this in laboratories, we human beings are dramatically more influenced by nonverbal communication than verbal communication. Uh I'm saying that as a radio talk show host. Right. It's not that our words don't have effect, but they're not as effective as, so if, you, if we learn to read nonverbal, mm-hmm. and all of us have this ability because evolution has inputted into our brains. Because if our ancestors weren't at least somewhat competent the, you know, at nonverbal communication, they wouldn't have survived. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we all have the ability, and we've all used that ability, but usually it's unconsciously. Uh-huh. Okay. But what Navarro's going to do is make conscious what he saw coming out of the unconscious of these candidates through their body language. You get a very different book than reading the pundits who all start with who their favorite was and they tend to be prejudiced towards that person. Right, and, and it's based on what the person said. Right. So let's go back to Milton Erickson. Erickson died in 1980. He wasn't supposed to live that long. Hmm. Um. He was a psychotherapist, considered the, the greatest ever medical uh, hypnotist, hypnotherapist. But even more impressive, this article says, is his courage in the face of tragedy. At the age of seven, it's not an accident that he became probably the world's leading authority on nonverbal communication. Here's why. Mm-hmm. 
At the age of 17, he was stricken by polio. Ah. One evening after visiting Erickson at his bedside, his doctor told Erickson's mother that her son was entirely paralyzed by polio and would not live until morning. Wow. Erickson overheard this in his bed. That's a great doctor, by the yeah. way. I want to get his name. <laughs> good name. bedside manner. Yeah, good bedside manner. <laughs> uh, not knowing that, that the patient was going to hear, the 17-year-old was going to hear him say to his mother, by the way, he's entirely paralyzed and won't live till the morning. That's, that's not a good <laughs> prognosis, is it? <laughs> no, not one you want to hear. So you know what Erickson's response was? He asked his mother to arrange a mirror so he could see the sunset. Hmm. If he was going to die, said Erickson, at least he would enjoy the beauty of a last sunset. Now, how many of us would come up with that one? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'd like to think that's what I would have come up with. I have a feeling it would be something a little nastier, <laughs> and a little more negative. Uh-huh. Defying his doctor's prediction, Erickson didn't die the next morning. In fact, he lived for another 50 years. Wow. I'm sorry. I said 50. He said he wanted to live for another half century. A lot more. If he was 17 when he heard this, and he, um, okay, half century, 50 years. Erickson's doctors also predicted he would never walk. Uh-huh. Erickson resisted this prediction as well. After his first year in college, okay, after being told he, he's never going to walk again, why, by the way, why would a doctor say that to somebody? <laughs> why wouldn't you say, listen, you've got a very serious illness, um, and we're going to have to work very hard if you want any chance of walking again. Why would a doctor say you're never going to walk again? They don't even, first of all, they don't know that. Right. And second of all, why would you say it even if you did know it? Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's a whole other issue. Okay. <laughs> so what does Erickson do? After his first year in college, he spent his summer vacation taking a thousand-mile river trip. Wow. When he started out on the trip, he didn't have enough strength in his legs to pull his canoe out of the water, and he could swim only a few feet. Now, let's just go over what he did. Uh-huh. He didn't say, I want to go on a thousand-mile trip, and I know it's going to be difficult but if I get a couple friends or family members to help me, maybe I can pull it off. No. He did it on his own. Wow. On the river, he had to fish and forage for food since he had few supplies and only $2.32 in cash. <laughs> With his interpersonal skills, his ability to read people, a.k.a. nonverbal communication... Erickson had no trouble getting fishermen and other travelers to give him the food he could not get on his own. Huh. Now, the way he became an expert in nonverbal communication was he was in a wheelchair after being diagnosed with polio. Right. He had the resilience to say, uh, to say I'm not going to die. He eventually, for a while, did learn, teach himself to walk. He ended his life in a wheelchair. But by sitting in the wheelchair, instead of bitching and moaning about it, like most of us would have done, he realized there was a certain advantage in being in a wheelchair. Namely, it was a great laboratory space to watch people and their behavior. Yeah. So if his family went to the mall, he would be in the wheelchair. They would leave him. You know, he would say, leave me here. They would go off and shop, and he would just watch people for hours and hours and hours. Hmm. And he 
basically through that experience learned non that how people because he couldn't hear them talking half the time he was looking off at the distance uh-huh. but he was able to know by the way they moved their bodies what they were communicating fascinating anyway by the end of that summer erickson had traveled over a thousand miles he could swim a mile and carry his own canoe wow later in his life erickson needed a wheelchair to get around but that was only after many years of walking with his own strength proving his doctors wrong erickson believed that solutions to human problems lie within the person in the unconscious mind In therapy, his view was for the person to become aware of the strengths and resources within himself, very much like what Erickson had experienced in his struggle with polio. But he was unique in his belief that the unconscious mind was a source of strength and healing. Remember, Sigmund Freud deserves tremendous credit for changing the 20th century forever. Right. With his publication of The Interpretation of Dreams, nonetheless, had a very limited view of the unconscious. He gets credit for opening up the floodgates to say, hey, we need to study this. It's not just for, the, for poets to write about. It's, it's, for, it's for scientists to study. That's Freud. Give him credit for it. But he felt the unconscious was this dark, brooding, violent environment that had to be tamed uh-huh. if a human being was going to have a good life. What others from Carl Jung and Milton Erickson said is, no, that's part of what the unconscious is, but the unconscious also has our deepest wisdom. And so the reason people would go to Erickson who couldn't be cured by any doctor or therapist is because he he was communicating directly with the patient's unconscious and educating them that their unconscious can figure out most any problem, just as his did. Uh Uh-huh. Now, Freud and the post-Freudian mode of thought had dominated medicine when Erickson attended medical school. They believed, as I pointed out, that the unconscious or subconscious mind was a place of dark drives and hostilities that had to be brought to light and tamed by the ego. Our ego has too much to do already, okay? <laughs> uh-huh. Without being a lion tamer, okay? The whole point of meditation is, to, in fact, to bypass the ego. By the way, that's also... The technique of hypnosis. In hypnosis, you basically give the ego stuff to do, right? So it stops chattering at you. Uh, right. So you can listen to the deeper unconscious messages, right? Uh-huh. The ego tends to drown them out by criticizing them, demeaning them, etc., because the ego is threatened by them. So in self-hypnosis and in Ericksonian hypnosis, you don't try to tame the ego, that just makes it stronger, uh-huh. right? Just like maybe someday, I doubt it, um, uh, we'll figure out, people who don't like Donald Trump will figure out that when you keep talking about him and complaining about him, you're actually giving him more strength, uh-huh. right? <laughs> if you constantly try to tame your ego, good luck, but you can give it other things to do. So the therapist in role, according to Erickson, was not about interpreting the dark motivations of the unconscious. Erickson believed a person's unconscious was a positive force that could help in the healing process. So through hypnosis, which is basically calming the brain down, slowing down the brain waves, 
The therapist could harness the healing power of the patient's unconscious. The role of the therapist was not to give the patient insight, but to teach the patient how to utilize his or her unconscious to give a new experience that would lead to change. In Erickson's view, conscious insight, which we all pay tribute to, cannot make big changes. Uh Uh-huh. Um, during his he found that speaking to a person's unconscious on the other hand was an effective way in producing a change so I'll give a specific example okay Okay. now I chose not to practice this stuff I don't have a therapist's persona Uh Um, but again I got a chance to learn it but a friend of the woman I was living with at the time, I guess had heard me talk about it, and she was very unhappy with her weight. And she said she had tried every diet, and you know, would I do a session with her? I said, sure. So, you know, by the way, learning hypnosis is very simple. Yeah. You can learn it in a week. How to put yourself in a hypnotic trance. It's very similar to meditation. Um, so anyway, she's in her trance, and we're talking. Again, I'm taking Erickson's hint. I'm not trying to cure her or give uh-huh. her insight. I'm just trying to figure out what her conscious, what her unconscious has to say about things, nonverbal communication. So we're talking while she's kind of in this trance, and so well, what you know, what is it about eating that you think is the issue, or what is? And she's talking, and she's saying how she knows that exercise would be important, but she doesn't like sports and blah, and. I'm watching her body, and I suddenly notice, it was so, her feet were going through the motions as if she was walking up some stairs. Huh. So I just took notice of that. So she comes up, so I said, by the way, I don't know if you noticed it, but your feet were, she goes, that's interesting. I keep telling myself, I don't like gyms, but maybe if I walked up and down my stairs in my home, it would be good exercise. Uh-huh. She let me know about a month later that she was doing that every day, and she just <laughs> felt so much better about herself. Uh-huh. I don't know. I don't know if she lost weight or whatever. Uh-huh. But the point was, that was Erickson's genius. Stop trying to give people insight. Just alert them to what their unconscious is doing and uh-huh. saying, and they'll come up with the answer. So Erickson was fascinated by the unconscious, even believed there was always unconscious communication between people in which one person's subconscious mind talks to another's. This connects to those pendulum clocks. Right. Those clocks are communicating to each other. We're not saying they're doing it out of intention. We're not saying that they have a desire to communicate, but they are communicating. It's a scientific fact. Uh We heard it. Yeah. Now, they need to be connected in such a way that the minuscule signals they're sending out get transferred to the other clocks. So again, when the clocks were on the table, the table wasn't a medium for that, but when put on two aluminum cans, the aluminum was a good medium for it. And they immediately, within seconds, they were synchronized. Yeah. So Erickson believed that the unconscious modes of communication between therapist and client played a more important role than conscious communication. Okay. 
So when we come back from our break, huh? and we're well past our first break, <laughs> we're going to go into this guy who's a body language expert. He actually worked for the FBI huh. for uh, most of his career and used nonverbal communication to solve FBI cases. Right. And uh, he was asked to watch the most recent Democratic presidential debate and evaluate the candidate not by what they said, but by their nonverbal communication. You may find it interesting. Still the Woodstock Roundtable. I'm Doug Grunther, hosting, Ron Van Warmer co-hosting. You know Ron if you listen to Radio Woodstock on the weekends, playing great music, and he'll continue to do that when I leave here at 9 a.m. Indeed. Uh, in our second hour, we're going to have some guests, um, the director of a wonderful arts program here in Kingston, and Sal Cataldi's back because he's involved with that. He's an event producer, very creative guy and a musician, so he'll play some music for us. Nice. We'll find out more about arts in Kingston. We will ha- open up our Witchstock Roundtable jukebox a little later on, and um, we'll have music from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini, and a wrap-up with our favorite street philosopher, Patrick Carlin. So we're talking about the human brain, we're talking about the unconscious, and we're talking about an interesting article you can find at politico.com, uh, written by an expert in nonverbal communication. Uh, his name is Joe Navarro. He worked for the FBI most of his career. And uh-huh. He was a consultant. Ever since the first televised presidential debate in 1960, that was between the then mm-hmm. Vice President Richard Nixon and right. a very young, brash senator named John F. Kennedy. And Nixon was the heavy favorite. Mm-hmm. Experienced. Eisenhower was beloved. He was under Eisenhower. He'd already shown he was a creep by red baiting and putting people in jail uh, for um, attending, a, you know, certain, you know, left left wing meetings. But he was the favorite and they had the first televised debate. And here's what was fascinating. Those who watched the debate on TV overwhelmingly thought Kennedy won it. Those who heard it on radio overwhelmingly thought Nixon won it. Mm-hmm. So what was going on there? While. We can pick up a lot by a voice without seeing somebody. It turned out Kennedy was an intuitive master at visual and nonverbal communication, and Nixon couldn't have been worse. Mm -hmm. No one remembers what was said during those two debates, but everyone remembered those moments. Uh, For example, when, um, when Hillary Clinton debated Donald Trump, there was a moment where literally... Trump left his podium 
and walked behind Hillary as she was speaking, like he was stalking her. Uh-huh. Nonverbal cues are humans' most fundamental form of communication, echoing Milton Erickson. We use them to assess friendliness, competency, danger, and truth, even to pick our mates. Nonverbal communication or body language is hardwired into our DNA. It's how our ancestors survived. Sure. I've studied nonverbal communication for 45 years, 25 as a special agent with the FBI, where my job was to catch spies, often using nothing more than body language. What I learned is not only useful in catching criminals, it can be used to analyze politicians. Here's the story body language told at the debate. All right. And we start with Biden's glabella. Glabella? Yeah. I don't know that word. I didn't either. Okay. <laughs> it sounds like something in his throat. It does. His glabella. Um, when it comes to nonverbal communication, psychological discomfort is an attention grabber. Now, remember the most talked about part of the debate, talked about in all the wrong ways, was Julian Castro attacking Joe Biden right. for not remembering what he said a few minutes ago. And it turned out that while Biden, we know, comes can come across as your doddering old, nice doddering old uncle, and after two hours he started sounding really <laughs> discombobulated. <laughs> the fact of the matter is Castro's attack didn't work. It, it came across as kind of crude, right? Mm -hmm. That's how the media reported it, right? This guy's not interested in what people are saying. He's watching body language, okay? Right. If you notice, the media will comment, oh, he raised his voice at Joe. He, you know, he was, he was crude. Castro used an unrelenting machine-gunning verbal technique to go after Biden. And Biden let it rattle him. When someone attacks you like that, it's best to pause, take a moment to calm yourself, some might break the tension with a little laugh, a low exhale, or a deep breath. The fact that Biden's discomfort was brought on by one of the less popular candidates was significant. Uh-huh. Now, the glabella is the small area between the eyes, just above the nose. Okay. That's you know, a good We think of it wrinkling know. a little bit, yeah. right? Right? When, when you squint, when you furrow your glabella between, uh -huh. above your nose, between <laughs> your eyes, non-verbally you're communicating psychological discomfort, dislike, disdain, or anxiety. Huh. The fact that Biden's discomfort was brought on by one of the most popular candidates was significant. Glabella furrowing can elicit sympathy from an observer. Babies develop this ability to furrow their glabellas at three to six weeks. Wow. But when you see facial displays of psychological discomfort on someone with 40 years of government experience, brought on by a less experienced candidate who isn't polling as well, it makes you wonder, is this guy prepared for the onslaught that will come when he faces off against Donald Trump? Now, virtually none of us were thinking this when it happened. No. But I think I'm going to take this guy as being pretty much on the mark. All right. Booker and O'Rourke's eyes. Cory Booker and Beto O'Rourke both grabbed attention with their speeches on gun control. Their eyes were focused. They didn't wander all over the room. Their gestures were emphatic 
and expansive. When people speak passionately, taking up space with gestures and focusing their gaze, it's hard to turn away from them. Mm -hmm. The strong body language conveys that the speaker is not hesitating or equivocating. In other words, it's a sign of authenticity. That's something you say uh, evangelical preachers. Oh, they're great at it. They're really good at that body language. Oh, yeah. These moments were also effective because the candidate's strong, decisive speech patterns matched their body language. In other words, you can't fake body language. Uh-huh. If, you, if it's not really who you are or you haven't practiced it hell of a lot, it's going to come across as artificial. He's saying that both O'Rourke and Booker, when talking about gun control, pulled it off because their gestures match their speech patterns. The brain prefers congruity. When someone's sure. tone of voice and manner of speaking are in sync with their physicality. There we go with synchronized again. Uh-huh. Kamala Harris seemed less passionate compared with the other candidates, especially in the first hour. Her words were well chosen, but her hand gestures were less emphatic, less outward, less forceful than those of her opponents, particularly Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren has lots of hand gestures. Mm -hmm. Well, hand gestures can be a plus or a minus. Mm -hmm. What he's saying is it depends whether those of us observing feel that the hand gestures are in sync with uh -huh. their speech pattern and their <laughs> body language. Right. Klobuchar and Warren both gestured with their outstretched hands to highlight their points and would often touch their chest or breastbone to emphasize how they felt about what they were talking about. Mm. Now, we know that a lot of males like to bang on their chest. Right. right. That's one form of communication. What he pointed out, both Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren did, was they pointed and touched to their breastbone. Touching the chest is a display of humanity. Not beating it, touching it. Touching it. it. It signals, I am empathetic. What I am saying is deeply felt. Booker used a similar gesture, touching his stomach. But when Harris, Kamala Harris, was trying to be emphatic, notice her elbow was tucked in, the arm hmm. close to her body. And she gave a lot of statements with a closed fist. She might have set herself up for good sound bites, but that's verbal. But these small closed gestures subtracted from her message. I saw this when I used to do jury consulting. I would ask jurors about the attorney's performance, and they invariably thought attorneys with smaller gestures lack confidence and self-assurance. Huh. It was Pete Buttigieg, however, a former military officer, who had the smallest gestures on the stage. Leaders typically should use broad but smooth gestures. The brain prefers smoothness. Gestures that get your attention but aren't jittery. Huh. All right, so he goes on. So if you look at the pundits, they'd say, oh, Biden had a good night. Right. If you listen to the expert on nonverbal, which is where most of us get our information unconsciously, Biden didn't have a good night at all. And it's how we feel. We, we get that feeling. 
Now, that doesn't mean he's not going to get the nominations because, trust me, the DNC will try to manipulate it that way because he's considered the safest candidate. Right. What they don't realize is we're not living in a time of safety. We're living in a time of great drama, great change, and people want to be passionate about something. They don't want a middle of the road, oh, he's not Trump. Right. They don't get that yet. Yeah, we wouldn't have Trump if we wanted safe. Right. They think that because Trump is so bad, whoever, if we just put up someone who's safe, he'll or she will win. I'll just predict right now, not because I want it, but if Biden's the nominee, say hello to President Trump in 2020. Yeah, I I don't disagree. He may win anyway, but because Joe Biden, by the way, he's proven this in the past when he was younger. Uh He cannot get through any substantial campaign without screwing up. (laughs) Doesn't mean he isn't a nice guy. Doesn't mean he hasn't been an effective senator. Right. He's been a terrible presidential candidate in the past, and he's no better now. And so this guy's coming. It's interesting because the pundits never talked about that. All they talked about was how crude. Um, uh, uh, I'm blanking on his name. Let me get his name. Uh, Castro was. Right. How crude he was, never picking up on the fact that what he did was show how weak Biden was. Mm hmm. Very interesting. In other words, pundits came out, every, they're saying everyone has sympathy for Joe Biden. But is that who you want as your president? Something, somebody you have sympathy for? No. Not, not in the year not 2020? No. It just annoys me when the pundits actually, you, you watch a debate and then you listen to the pundits and they tell you what you are supposed to think. Well, but that's their job. Our job is to think for ourselves. And the only way exactly. we can think for ourselves is to get a little a little more practiced in something that we are genetically primed to do, which is nonverbal communication. So here's here's uh, the the author here. It's good. It's in Politico.com. Uh, the author is Joe Navarro. He worked at the FBI for decades as an expert in uh, nonverbal communication. Now he's a consultant. And he says, so what's the takeaway from the debate? Uh-huh. During the debate, your brain was busy processing images and words in that order. Right. We focus on the words consciously. But we're taking in a lot more information just before that through images. You might have thought your favorite candidate had a perfect performance. Biden's people did. Uh They thought he was great. You might feel indifferent about others, but in time, your unconscious will process these images and words and will make you take notice of some things you might not have thought about. If you find yourself considering someone you ignored before or growing more accepting of a candidate, it's no accident. It's due in part to your exposure to what you saw Thursday, whether it was a glabella furrowing, a heartfelt gesture, or a precision grip. And he also said, you know, Bernie, I like Bernie. Bernie's uh-huh. coming across as you're very sincere, very smart, very passionate, but always angry uncle. Right. Biden is coming across as a very nice, somewhat doddering uncle. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of uncles. What Elizabeth Warren has been able to do, and I didn't think she could do it, and maybe ultimately she can't or we'll see. She's clearly the, the most clear in terms of enunciating what her policies are. But that's not what gets you elected president. 
Mm-hmm. She's gotten a lot better, and he proved this, at learning how to use body language and nonverbal communication because I, at the beginning, I thought she came across as a school marm or that librarian who's always telling you to be quiet. Uh-huh. And she still has some of that. Yeah. Um, hey, she was a special needs teacher, you know. Um, but she, she's got more gravitas than I thought she would have in this thing. And for, again, we're not talking about their policies. Right. Because that's not what's going to get them elected. That's exactly right. It's interesting. I, I will be watching the next uh, debate consciously uh, checking the, the body language. It would be a good idea, and then we'll check in with Joe Navarro again. We'll have something to yeah, say about I'd it. Certainly, I'm certainly excited to see it now. So I was hoping in this hour we'd get to Robert Wright's book, Why Buddhism <laughs> is True, The Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment, and my favorite, Ian McGilchrist, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. And um, But we seem to be running out of time. So very quickly I know. in the next few minutes, let me read just one paragraph from a book, which I'm finding a little disjointed. Um, but the guy's a great writer. He was a psychiatrist in the 60s who, who got a lot of this uh-huh. uh, by the name of Alan McLash and the book right. is called The Savage and Beautiful Country. And here's a wonderful paragraph that speaks to what we've just been talking about. What is sought in these pages is not some flamboyant new form of consciousness that will seize men's minds and revolutionize the world, but an almost imperceptible interchange, a willed suspension of conventional judgments, a poised awareness, a stillness in which long smothered voices that speak the language of the soul can be heard again. It is a quiet secret. He's talking about the inner life. Mm -hmm. He says, but do not be misled for it's a terrible secret as well as a quiet secret. The inner life of the mind has its nightmares as well as its golden dreams and fancies to become purely receptive to create an inner silence is to unlock a dangerous door, opening upon a world from which faint hearts would do wisely to keep away. <laughs> um, and yet, if we don't take that journey, we're just, we're just slaves to that noisy brain uh-huh. that's always sensing danger, always looking out for a saber-toothed tiger around the corner, those very behaviors that were essential to our ancestors for survival are now going to end our species if we don't get better controls of our brains. And get more in sync. And get more in sync with each other. We uh-huh. have that innate ability. If pendulum clocks can do it, <laughs> if geese can do it, human beings can do it and have done it. Uh huh. As cacophonous, chaotic, and violent as we are, we've created some pretty damn effectively you know, big cities yeah that have a lot of problems but also a lot of benefits there's got to be a lot of synchronistic communication for there ever to be a, a, a even a town yeah it wouldn't work if there it, weren't some synchronicity it wouldn't work at all yeah i mean we know the traffic patterns going in and out of new york city can be frighteningly horrific uh-huh but how is it that they even it even moves at all <laughs> i know it, it, it is a miracle American we have the innate ability. We just have to. It's not part of our educational system. Yeah. I was thinking about this. In our, let's say, from kindergarten through uh, high school, uh-huh. how many 
minutes were spent on a study of the human brain. I don't recall any. Maybe 10 minutes? (laughs) Maybe in a biology. The most important tool we have. We We don't use it consciously enough. And we don't understand the unconscious uh-huh. because if, and again Erickson and what Navarro both are saying is they're not saying consciousness is not important but they're saying the unconscious is much more important right we know for a fact that our unconscious is responsible for well over 90 percent of our behavior and a lot of that is nonverbal. so wouldn't it be a good idea to learn a little bit more about that <laughs> yeah yeah it would well there's some good books out there good yeah. websites out there Interesting stuff. No doubt about it. All right. We're going to have to take a break. All right. When we come back, we're going to have music from the Sultan of Sonic Soul. We're going to have music from Sam Cataldi. We're going to find out about some cool arts events happening in Kingston. Uh, We're going to open up our Woodstock Roundtable jukebox. Usually all hell breaks loose then. Uh And with any luck, we'll be back in a few Uh minutes. (laughs) Hey, Gus. Yeah. 